What is going on, everybody? You're listening to another exciting episode of the Unlockables podcast, the story of video games, the people who play them, and the memories made along the way. As always, I am your host. My name is Eric. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Wherever, whenever, in time and space you might be located, it means a lot to me that you're willing to spend just a little bit of your hard-earned time listening to the show and checking in with us. It, it really does mean a lot to me. It keeps me going, so I thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Now, before we get going on this episode, as always, just want to give a shout-out at the top of the episode to the boys over at Hyper Potions. The music that is in the Unlockables intro is from Hyper Potions. The song in the intro is Time Trials Plus. The link to that song is in the description in the show notes and also is linked to the YouTube channel. Make sure you swing by, give them a subscribe, listen to some songs. You'll be feeling much better after listening to some Hyper Potions music, I guarantee you. Now, today, what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be picking up where we left off with the Super Mario World episode of The Unlockables. And in that episode, we did some fun stuff with some skits. I wanted to talk about some games that had an important impact on me as a person that plays video games in my childhood and up through my adulthood. And so keeping in the theme of the Super Nintendo, we are doing a, another Super Nintendo game today. And of course, you know by the title of that game, it is going to be Mega Man X. <laughs> doing any kind of little skits or anything today. Uh, Truth be told, I did have some skits in mind for this episode. I just didn't get around to recording them. I was feeling, and I have been feeling the last couple weeks, uh, really super anxious just about all the podcast stuff I've been doing. And so I I had some some skits planned and uh, Keith, God bless him, he was going to join me for them. But uh, I just wanted to go with this one solo because I'm just feeling a little bit of I don't know, content creator anxiety, and so I've just been working through that stuff. But just being totally honest with you guys, uh, the skits will not be going away. The skits will be returning for the next game, which uh, I will reveal at the end of this episode, the next game that we will be talking about. But that's not going to stop me from talking about this game and continuing my own kind of mini personal journey of talking about games that really had an impact on me. And obviously by the, the title of the episode, you know that this one is Mega Man X. Now. This one's going to be interesting because despite me placing this right after Super Mario World, the first game I ever played, I actually didn't play Mega Man X when I was a kid. I had a passing, a brief passing interaction with it at a friend's house when I was in grade school. I don't remember the exact year. I remember seeing it and it stuck with me to this day just because of how awesome it looked. So it wasn't until the Legacy Collections came out for the Switch that I actually got the opportunity to play Mega Man X. And it's a game since I played it that I think if I had played it back in the day when I was a kid, I think it definitely would have been a game that I hold very near and dear to my heart. I think it would have not that I don't hold it near and dear to my heart now. I think it would have had a more profound effect on me as a kid uh, than having played it as an adult. That being said, this game is still fantastic and we're going to go into my reasons why I think that is in this episode, we're going to just do a little bit of a deep dive, maybe not such a deep dive, but maybe a little bit of a dive on the history of Mega Man, the development history of Mega Man X. And then some of the things that the game does really well that make it a game that still should be played today. And some of these old SNES titles, I think, stand the test of time just in the way that they're designed that make them stand against a lot of games that get put out today. So. Without further ado, I think it's time that we dive into Mega Man X.
now, as is probably common knowledge, you probably know this already, but the Mega Man franchise was developed by Capcom. The first title being released under the name of Mega Man in North America, Rockman in Japan. In 1987, as of July 26, 2022, the Mega Man series has sold 38 million units across 50 games. There are 11 games in the mainline Mega Man series, Mega Man's 1 through 11, obviously. And then there were kind of two sort of spin-off series, the Mega Man X series, which was a direct sequel to the mainline Mega Man series, and then the Battle Network series, which was a alternate kind of timeline universe if the internet became a bigger thing than robots did. And I don't have much experience with either the mainline Mega Man series or the Battle Network series, but it's it's two things I've been meaning to go back and kind of fill in in my backlog. I actually did play Mega Man 5 this year along with X and X2. So this year at the age of 31, 2022, the year of our Lord, is the year that I have played the most Mega Man ever in my entire life. And you're probably like, well, why did you play Mega Man 5 out of all of the original you know, six Mega Man titles on the NES? And that will be made clear in the distant slash near present future. Uh, why I played Mega Man 5. Look for that on the horizon for sure. There are eight games in the, the Mega Man X series. Uh, some spinoffs related to the Mega Man X series as well. I believe there was a Mega Man soccer title on the Super Nintendo. And the early Mega Man series established a lot of the series staples over these first six games on the NES. Uh, you had stuff like fighting the eight robot masters. Each stage is themed around a robot master that has a element or a power. Uh, taking the powers from those robot masters when you defeat them. The rock, paper, scissors style of boss weakness. Uh, one of the robot masters has fire. You'd use that against the robot master that's in charge of ice. And part of the game was figuring out what those weaknesses were so you could use them against the appropriate robot masters and kind of figure out what was the most optimal path through the game. Not that you needed to take that optimal path, but it was there for you if you wanted to make it a little bit easier on yourself because the original Mega Man games were pretty challenging, as were most games back in the mid to late 80s. They were designed to be intentionally a little more difficult because even back then, last ability was something that was really important and really thought about. Uh, back then, you didn't have the luxury of developers adding a new season of content every two to three months in the forms of battle passes, in-game events that they could just patch into the game. That stuff didn't really come until the advent of the internet. So even back then, if you're paying 40 50 $60 adjusted for inflation, you know, that's that's a steep price for anyone to ask for a game and it for it to be over in a, in a handful uh, of hours. That just wasn't... You either had to have insane replay value, something like Tetris, or you had to have something that was going to last you a little bit and, and took a while for you to figure out, you know, your Zelda's, your Mega Man's, for example. Now, looking back, you know, we've gotten so good at games that these games can be broken and completed within minutes. The original Super Mario Bros. can be beaten in under five minutes. The world record for Mega Man is, I believe, somewhere in the mid-20 minutes. Uh, Mega Man 2, I believe. So, yeah, these games are now easy to beat because we can exploit certain things in the way they were designed. But back then, you had to give families, parents, kids, a reason for justifying the spend on their money. Is that an excuse for some of the bullshit designs of the way things were designed back then? No, no, absolutely not. But you had to figure out a way to give people value for their money because games were transitioning out of the arcades for where games were designed to just eat your quarters and make as much money as possible into the living room. And it's much more difficult to design a game when you have to think about, hey, this has to be playable for days, weeks, months, years afterwards. It's not just something that somebody's going to spend that much money on and then put down and walk away. It's a little bit different now, I think, because video games are so mainstream and the amount of money that people are willing to put towards video games is we, we've kind of justified that cost. So we're willing to purchase two to four hour experiences, you know, at 30, 40 dollars that are over relatively quickly. It's the same thing as spending $40 and going to see a two-hour movie, in my mind. The creation of Mega Man was heavily influenced by the Astro Boy manga. Uh, the original team that made Mega Man consisted of 
only six people, including Kenji Anafane, who was the designer, programmer, art director, pretty much is synonymous with the Mega Man series uh, to this day. And I'm probably saying his name wrong, Kenji Anafane. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how it's said, but that's just me signing, sounding it out in my American voice. Inafune was originally on the Street Fighter team for Capcom, and then they brought him over uh, to work on the, the Mega Man, Rockman in Japan series because Capcom wanted some young, fresh talent on this game to have like a different perspective on what the game should be. And Inafune, after working on the Street Fighter team, he was just recently out of college, so him and him and five others were put on this Mega Man team to kind of figure it out. The reason why it was called Rockman in Japan was... Uh, the game has a lot of themes around around rock and roll. You can obviously see Mega Man was called Rock in Japan. His sister was called Roll, therefore. And uh, some of the bosses, robot masters, names, different people in the series have music-related names. Like you have Treble and Bass, for just an example like that. It was changed for the American localization. And this is kind of funny. Uh, there wasn't really any kind of profound enlightening reason why the name was changed from Rockman to Mega Man. It was pretty much on the whims of then senior vice president of Capcom, Joseph Marici. He just didn't like the Rockman name for North America. He came up with Mega Man and the team liked it enough that it stuck for the North American release. He thought that Mega Man would sell better with kids in the United States than than Rockman. Because it's like, oh, Rockman. Like, anytime I hear Rockman, it's it's so weird to me because I grew up knowing him as Mega Man. So anytime I hear Rockman, I think of somebody that has, like, rock powers. Or I get an image of, like, Kirby turning into a rock for some reason. So I think it's really funny that the vice president was just like, nah, we're not really feeling this name right now. So we're just going to change it to something else. And obviously Mega Man stuck because the, the series has been pretty successful over here in the States. And just thinking about it, too... Uh, you know, this was the age that toys and cartoons and things were really trying to appeal to kids in this kind of like cool, radical type of way. Although I don't think the people that did the box art designs for the North American versions of Mega Man got the uh, got the memo because, man, those are terrible. <laughs> it's like a police guy with a gun. Just go look it up. They're, they're pretty bad for for all the North American releases. The original... The first six Mega Man games were all released on the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES. Even going into 1993, which was the release of Mega Man 6, which even though the Super Famicom was released in November of 1990, the Super NES in the fall of 1991, they were still making Mega Man games for the NES up until 1993. You might find this kind of weird now. It's not really weird if you think about it in the context of now how people are still making games for like the PlayStation 4 and the PlayStation 5. Nintendo sold so many Nintendo Entertainment Systems in the United States that the metric was that one out of every four homes had a Nintendo Entertainment System in them. So it's understandable that Capcom and Nintendo would be hesitant to stop making games for the NES when the, the adoption rate for that hardware was so high. So it's the reason why three years into the Nintendo Super Nintendo's life cycle, two years for North America, they were still coming out with Mega Man games on the NES. And finally, finally, they decided that, hey, we've got to put one on this new hardware. We can't just keep making these games on this old hardware anymore. And that is where the idea for Mega Man X came from. Super Nintendo was way more advanced hardware than the NES. We've we've talked about it a little bit in, in some other episodes about how much more advanced. I think I talked about it a little bit on the Super Mario episode, just about how much more advanced that software was going to 16-bit, having so many more color options, so many more audio channels for increased sound, uh, mode 7, all that stuff that the, the Super Nintendo could do. So uh, 
it was really, really important for for Inafune and his team is Keiji Inafune, not Kenji Inafune. I believe I missaid that earlier in the episode, so I apologize. But uh, when they started the development of Mega Man X, uh, they wanted to focus on reinventing Mega Man, but not completely changing the identity of Mega Man. They wanted to expand what a Mega Man game could be through the gameplay and through a more through a more mature story while remaining faithful to the original series that fans have come to know and love. Obviously, fans of the series don't want something that's completely radical, completely different. They want something new and exciting for new hardware. But when you pick it up and play it, you still want it to feel like Mega Man. So Inafune and Hayato Kaiji felt a lot more freedom working with the SNES just because they were not so constrained by the limits of the old hardware of the NES. They felt that they had a little more freedom to do what they want to have more powerful hardware, especially having an expanded number of colors available to them. It's funny enough that one of the characters that appears in Mega Man X Zero, the the other Maverick Hunter who works alongside X and who you see in the intro stage, he was created with the intention to actually be the replacement for Mega Man. Inafune and the team wanted a fresh take on Mega Man, but early fan reactions were a little bit of a concern. They wanted the familiar blue Mega Man that they've come to know and love over the years. So that was where they created X, the titular character, Mega Man X. And Zero kind of became a supporting uh, companion NPC to Mega Man, at least in this initial title. One of the traditions that Mega Man X took away was having man at the end of the names of every robot master. So, for example, like in the other games, you have Quick Man, Wave Man, Wood Man, Air Man, Heat Man. Those were essentially the names of all of the robot masters. They were an easy way to theme the robot masters. It is, I mean, you're not going to mistake like what you're walking into. It's like Heat Man, I'm doing, dealing something with fire. Air Man, I'm dealing something with, with wind, right? It's, it's not that confusing. Mega Man X moved away from that and kind of went to uh, animatronic animals. So all of the... The bosses in Mega Man X are based off of some kind of animal in nature, right? Chill Penguin, Spark Mandrill, uh, Armored Armadillo, Launch Octopus, Boomer Kowanger, Sting Chameleon, Storm Eagle, Flame Mammoth. I know what you're thinking. You're like, what's a mandrill? A mandrill is actually a type of monkey that is found in West Central Africa. So, yeah, I was confused with that, too, because I'm like, oh, well, I've never heard of a mandrill before, but... Yeah, so they dug deep to find a, a different a bunch of different kinds of animals, and, and I believe a boomer of Kowanger is a type of bug as well. The team also wanted the world to be more rich when they went about developing it, so they gave it significantly more story elements than the original series, and this can be seen if, if you try to read the history and the story of, of the Mega Man X series. It's absolutely batshit insane, uh, and to have characters like X-Zero and Sigma kind of be the focal point of this story especially for the character of sigma i mean in the original series it was very clear that dr wiley was a bad guy it was it was black and white as black and white as it could be in that era it was it was the bowser to mario's mario was what dr wiley was so the game had a clear antagonist a clear goal a clear objective for you to try and complete whereas it sigma is presented as a very bad character but he has a little bit of a moral gray area as a former good character that ended up turning bad the music in this game was composed by Capcom's Alpha Lila team although uh, Setsuya Yamamoto contributed a majority of the tracks uh, Makoto Tawaza of Alpha composed the two most banging tracks on the game Spark Mandrill and Storm Eagle that is my personal opinion both those tracks go so hard in a game that is littered with songs that are so, so good. Spark Mandrill and Storm Eagle especially go hard. The 
game came out, Mega Man X was a critical and commercial success on the NES, the game releasing on December 17th, 1993 in Japan. And it did what it set out to do, which was revive the Mega Man franchise. By the time Mega Man 6 rolled around, people were getting kind of tired. It was the same thing kind of six times in a row. The numbered titles did try to innovate as best they could within the limited constraints of the hardware that they had. But the Super Nintendo just gave them so much more than they could possibly do. Even though the game wasn't that radically changed from the way Mega Man feels. And it was so successful that it's been ported to literally everything. It's on PC and mobile, GameCube, PlayStation, Virtual Console, 3DS, the Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and Switch. Got the Mega Man X Legacy Collections, which released all of the eight sequels to this game, I believe it is. Or not sequels, but eight games total in the X series to be playable altogether, which is absolutely insane and just shows that when you have an idea, you just milk it until it dies, which it did eventually die with this one. But it was a very, very successful game on the Super Nintendo, uh, being heralded as one of the best titles on that hardware up there with the likes of Link to the Past, Super Mario World, and a few others. I will briefly, <laughs> I will briefly break down the story of Mega Man X because believe it or not, there is story. Not much of it is communicated in the actual game too much. You kind of get the sense of what is going on, what your objective is, but there's a lot of background lore on Mega Man X, which is, I guess, pretty cool if you're into that sort of thing, but uh, doesn't take away from your experience of the game if you don't understand the depth and intricacies of this world that an Optimus team created. So Mega Man X takes place a century after the original Mega Man series. It is set in a futuristic world populated by both humans and reploids, which are robots capable of thinking, feeling, and growing like their human creators. Real kind of scary futuristic stuff. Because of these attributes, many reploids are prone to destructive renegade activity and are therefore referred to as Mavericks. The plot of the game follows X, an android member of the military task force called the Maverick Hunters. With the help of his partner Zero, X must thwart the plans of Sigma, a powerful Maverick leader wishing to bring about human extinction. So the story takes place in the year 21XX, which is a hundred years after the original Mega Man series is set. I believe that being set in the year 20XX. A man named Dr. Kane discovers X in the ruined lab of Dr. Light, the original person that built Mega Man. And X is a robot that has free will, human level intelligence, and emotions. The most advanced robot that had ever been seen at the time. And Dr. Light left him running all of these subroutines to make sure that nothing would go wrong when X was completed to make sure that he didn't just snap and literally go insane. Dr. Kane studies X, and by studying X, he reproduces robots that have feelings and free will similar to him, who are called the Reploids. But obviously, as with anything that is rushed, which is the reason that Dr. Light left Mega Man X buried for 100 years to make sure that all of his programming and stuff was sorted out before he came to life, because these were rushed and put out, uh, obviously the robots have free will. Uh, this comes the possibility of criminal activity, and these robots were called the Mavericks, as you said before. So... Obviously, the worst happens and chaos breaks out. The Some of the Reploids start performing crimes and threatening the balance of peace and power, whatever have you. So Dr. Kane helps establish the Maverick Hunters, at, who are robots designed to hunt down the rogue Reploids. Uh, an advanced Reploid named Sigma leads the Hunters until he too decides, hey, I don't have to take this shit. And he rebels and goes Maverick with... Most of the Maverick Hunters joining him out of loyalty. And Sigma starts a war on humanity and calls for the extinction of all humans. This is when Mega Man X enters the fray and decides that he has to help. Uh, Zero being the only other remaining Maverick Hunter uh, to stand against this onslaught. After being defeated by Vile and saved by Zero, X sets out to gain power and stop the Mavericks from destroying the world. That is basically the catalyst of the story. There's a lot of background information there. You wouldn't get all this information from playing the game. I certainly didn't. 
So I wonder if there's information in the game manuals or, or other sources that kind of laid out this entire story, because uh, to me, the story of Mega Man X is pretty straightforward. It's established in a through line in that introductory stage in the fight with Vile, which we'll touch on a little more in the gameplay section. Uh, pretty much at the end of the intro stage, you get your ass handed to you by by Vile. You have no chance of beating him. It is a fight that is designed for you to lose, which is when Zero comes in, proceeds to completely wreck Vile and then tell you that you're not as strong as you could be. You could be as strong as I am. And it pretty much sets up this story and this theme of Mega Man X growing stronger while trying to fight this maverick threat to humanity. And that is what the whole entire game is about. It is the reason you get power-ups. It is the reason you get powers from the Mavericks. It's the reason you find health boosters and energy tanks and armor pieces. It is the entire reason for the story of this game is the theme of getting stronger. Which you might think, like, duh, like, of course, like, you want to feel like you get stronger because that's what video games are about. Not necessarily. And this is why a lot of these elements were added in as well. Uh, things like the older Mega Man series didn't have armor pieces, didn't have upgrades that altered the way you change the game. And those influences were brought in from RPGs that were popular at the time. You could get different equipment that would make you stronger. You could get different pieces of gear that would change the way you play the game, that could change combat, that could make you more powerful. Uh, missed that in the development section. That is one of the reasons why they put that in there is because RPGs were pretty popular around this time and they wanted to add a little bit of RPG element into a otherwise straightforward platformer. And really, it's not that out of place because Mega Man was always getting new powers as he defeated Robot Masters. That is the story of Mega Man X. Uh, kind of leads us, and I've already started, kind of started talking about it, uh, it leads us into the gameplay. Mega Man series before it. Mega Man X is a standard action platform game where the you obviously control X and you have to complete eight stages that have Maverick bosses to advance to the Sigma stages at the end to fight Sigma and to beat the game. As with traditional Mega Man series, you can approach these stages in any order you want, but there is a rock, paper, scissors style order to the weaknesses of the bosses. So obviously uh, you can use that to your advantage and find a more optimal way through the game that makes the boss encounters easier for you because some of the bosses are pretty challenging. Although one of the criticisms that this game got when it came out was that it was almost too easy. And I don't think that's accurate. I think that was probably in comparison to the original Mega Man titles that came before it because Mega Man's one through six are pretty challenging games uh, that you do have to put a little bit of time into them to master getting good as you had to back in the day to complete them. So going through the bosses in the in the order, the rock, paper, scissors order makes your life a little bit easier. You will always, always, always after the intro stage, almost always start out with Chill Penguin first because Chill Penguin has one of the armor pieces that you pretty much get that's mandatory for the game. And that is the legs, which give you the dash ability. And we'll touch on the dash ability a little bit later on how that kind of changes the gameplay of Mega Man and how uh, despite having Dash and all these other abilities, the game still manages to feel like Mega Man. So you go through these eight stages, you fought, fight the bosses. Uh, in case you're wondering what the optimal order is, uh, you do Chill Penguin first. He's the easiest boss. He's not very difficult to defeat with the buster. Plus you get the Dash, which helps you exponentially in literally every single stage uh, throughout the game. Then is Spark Mandrill, Armored Armadillo, Launch Octopus, Boomer Kawanger, Sting Chameleon, Storm Eagle, and Flame Mammoth with 
each boss mentioned in the list being weak to the boss that preceded them. So Spark Mandrill's weakness is Chill Penguin. You can cheese him pretty easy with the Ice Blast and just pretty much freeze stun lock him until you kill him. Uh, Armored Armadillo is weak against the ability you get from Spark Mandrill. You can use the Lightning to shock off Armored Armadillo's uh, basically shell and make him more vulnerable, make him pretty easy to defeat. Launch Octopus is probably the most challenging boss in the game. He has a weakness to Armored Armadillo's ability, but it's still pretty difficult. Boomer Kawanger, the ability you get from Launch Octopus is heat-seeking missiles. Boomer Kawanger is pretty tough because he like teleports and warps all over the place, but the missiles will, will seek him out and kill him pretty quick. Uh, Sting Chameleon will hang from the ceilings. Boomer Kawanger, you obviously get a boomerang ability. That's very makes Sting Chameleon pretty easy. And then Storm Eagle, Flame Mammoth, so on and so forth. The order in which you beat the stages, too, has the ability to kind of change what happens in the stages as well. For example, if you beat Chill Penguin first, which you almost always will, uh, that'll affect Flame Mammoth stage where like normally there's a lot of fire and stuff. Uh, the snow and ice, the damage from Chill Penguin stage will actually negate all of that in Flame Mammoth stage and make it easier. Also an example, if you defeat Storm Eagle stage, which is actually set on a like giant aircraft in the sky, uh, the aircraft actually crashes into Spark Mandrill stage and breaks a bunch of stuff. So the levels change based on the order that you beat the bosses. And for example, I don't take the, the traditional path through the game. I always beat Chill Penguin first because that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you need to do to get the legs, the dash. Then I go fight Storm Eagle just because I don't feel like Storm Eagle is that difficult, even with or without the ability that he's weak to, which is the Sting Chameleon. I don't find that he's that difficult just to fight with the Buster and having Chill Penguin and his ability right off the bat and then having his stage crash into Spark Mandrill stage to make that one a little bit easier as well. Now, you don't have to take the predetermined path in there. It's just in there for you to be able to discover. Now, that's pretty much like a well-known thing. Uh, back then when the internet wasn't prevalent, you probably had to play this a bunch and figure out like what that optimal order is because it's been in every single Mega Man game since the beginning. Well, now it's pretty well known that this is the order these games have been out for a while and this is the way all Mega Man games function. You can beat these in the not predetermined order. People do buster only runs. People do uh, randomizers and stuff like that where they just play the game in any order to make it a little bit more challenging to mix it up a little bit, which I think is cool. I think is fine. Uh, if you are looking for an easier path through the game, though, and you want to experience it, uh, the order I said above is probably the most optimal path through the game. You might find different things that work for you. Like I said, I always do Chill Penguin and Storm Eagle first just because I think those stages are the easiest and just because I think those bosses are the easiest. Now, the, the biggest change to Mega Man is probably two things that don't drastically change the way Mega Man feels, but drastically change the way that you can play the game in a traditional Mega Man sense. And that is with the addition of wall jumping and dashing. Two things that weren't present in the original Mega Man series now allow for a much, much wider variety of level design options than previously in the series. If you think about it, one of the things that the Mega Man series didn't do too much and one of the parts where its level design kind of fell apart was the inclusion of vertical segments in stages. They weren't done to great effect. They weren't done fantastically uh, just because the old Mega Man, his jump was was very heavy and you were just using it to to clear chasms and clear platforms. Anytime there were vertical segments in the Mega Man series, they kind of involved a gimmick like jumping on the bubbles and Wave Man stage in Mega Man 5 or Quick Man stage from whatever the Mega Man that has Quick Man in it uh, with the laser beams at just falling straight down. So those things weren't really explored to their full extent in the original Mega Man series just because of the limitations of the gameplay and the hardware. Now all of a sudden, you add a mechanic where X can ascend and descend platforms and that opens up so many more doors for the way that the levels can be laid out 
And one of Mega Man's strengths has always been its its incredible level design. Uh, I feel that there there are certain spots in each game in each series, I'm sure, and in Mega Man X as well, where uh, things might feel kind of cheap. But I've always felt that in my experiences playing Mega Man X and having a little bit of experience in Mega Man 5 now, that uh, the design and enemy placement uh, of things in Mega Man is always very intentional. They're put there so that you have a few moments to observe and see what's coming before you have to react. Nothing really ever comes out of nowhere to kind of fuck you over. And that's just kind of the feeling that I've had with the series. Uh, They do a lot of good stuff so that you can activate the pattern recognition in your brain and be like, oh, okay, like this is going to happen to me or I see this happening or uh, before you have to deal with it, before you have to make a, a split second judgment decision. Like I said, there's bullshit things in every game. There's certainly bullshit things in Mega Man, but I feel like for the most part, they do a good job of laying levels out so that you have time to take in information and know within the confines of the game exactly what you have to do before you have no time to react at all. And I think that's that's really fantastic. So one of the challenges is now that you add in a new way to uh, ascend and descend vertically and you combine that with an ability like dash to accelerate at any point uh, the pace of the game has to be a little bit different now if you put a video of Mega Man X and the original Mega Man series like side by side uh, you'll find that the pace and th- the speed at which X moves forward is pretty comparable to the speed that Mega Man moves in the original series like they're they're relatively they're relatively similar that that's why jumping from the original series to X feels so good because the pace, it, fe- it feels like a Mega Man game. The the weight of the jump, the speed that he moves, it's stuff that you're familiar to. The the speed at which you fire lemons out of the buster, all that stuff feels familiar. It feels like it did in the original series. The only difference you have now is you have the ability to wall jump, you have the ability to dash, and that changes things drastically. Uh, the ability to dash would be meaningless if you still had these super slow screen transitions between uh, certain screens on the stage, there are no screen transitions except for one part in the level. And the only part where there are screen transitions is at the boss door, which is exactly the way it is in the original series. You get to a boss door, it opens, you enter, the screen slowly transitions over to a hallway, you walk to the next door, the door opens, you walk through, the screen slowly transitions over to the room where you fight the boss. I'm really glad that they decided to keep this element of the story in or this element of the gameplay in because I think showing off the more powerful hardware of the Super Nintendo by saying, hey, there are no more screen transitions in the levels, I I think that's really good. If you have screen transitions in the levels, I think that interrupts the flow of being able to to wall jump to higher places, to, to dash along. Like, it would suck if you're dashing along the ground and you reach the edge of the screen and you have to stop for a screen transition that would suck that would defeat the purpose and the dash wouldn't feel as good as it does in the game if you had to do that and the entire game is really designed around these two new abilities that x has you know you you don't have the various items and platforms like for example Mega Man 2 the items one through three that you could use to ascend or traverse certain obstacles in the stages you could dash and you could wall jump now so the entirety of the level design was designed to complement those two new changes to the way X moved. And mastering those abilities is very important to being able to collect a lot of the, the power-ups, the heart tanks, the energy tanks to increase your health to uh, and do things like that and to get through. A lot of the challenges in this game too are designed around using those two abilities efficiently. And if you can master the dash and the wall jump, you have the ability to absolutely fly through these levels. So uh, it, it's incredible that they were able to make such drastic changes to the way that Mega Man traverses. I mean, this was this is huge. I mean, he used to just be able to jump and shoot. He's jump and shoot, man. That's that's what he was. But when you do this and when you give a character two new abilities to be able to traverse, you know, you would think it would change the way the game feels, but like Inafune said at the top, their intention was to expand on the gameplay of Mega Man without completely ruining it and making it feel, feel familiar to the longtime fans. And if you play this, I, I think it, I think it does this in spades. Like despite the fact that 
You can absolutely move. You can fly now. The game still feels like Mega Man. And you can only really experience that when you play an older title and then go and play X. essay, I guess you could call it. Not a written essay, more of like a rambling essay. The The major strength of this game, I think, is its level design and is the way it's laid out. And it is by this that the level design inherently teaches the player how to play the game. And it's the reason I've said the statement before. And a lot of these thoughts you can find echoed in one of my favorite YouTube videos of all time. Uh, it is a video called Sequelitis. It is a comparison of the original Mega Man to Mega Man X. Uh, done by Aaron Hansen, a.k.a. Eagle Raptor, a.k.a. Uh, Angry Man on Game Grumps. Uh, he did a fantastic series of videos back in the early 2010s on comparing original games to their sequels. So, like, he did Link to the Past versus Ocarina of Time. He did Mega Man versus Mega Man X. He did Castlevania versus Simon's Quest. So he he did some really great videos on that before he just stopped doing them because the production value and on them was incredibly high and I think he probably got tired of all the hate after the Ocarina of Time video he makes the argument and it's an argument that I I very well agree with to this day and it's something that I, I very strongly hold to that the intro level to Mega Man X is fucking genius it is one of the most genius things that has ever been designed by mankind up there with landing on the mood and flight and all that stuff and the internet it's absolutely brilliant in the way it teaches players it's the, the things you can do in Mega Man, despite not even having the dash yet, it, it teaches you the basic things. And the way he frames this argument, and I'm just going to kind of take kind of take it and break it down here is like, just imagine you are a complete idiot who has never played video games before and you're playing Mega Man X. It's your first video game. So how do you convey to the person who has never played video games before the rules and how to play this game? Well, there are very little subtle design things that decisions that uh, direct you towards the correct way to, to play the game. So right off the bat, Mega Man X is the cursor on the start screen. And when you hit game start, he shoots a little blast out of his arm. So right away, the game is conveying to you, hey, you can shoot stuff out of your arm. So that's one thing that the game teaches you right off the bat, uh, right on the start menu. You're not even playing the game. So when you load into the intro stage, you warp in and there's a wall to your left. So that immediately reinforces the idea that you can only move right. It's the same thing with Mario. In this original Super Mario Bros, you start off on the left of the screen and the only way you're able to move is right. It's it's just a natural way of placement to design a player to move right through your level if you've never played a video game. Like right now, that's common knowledge. Like a lot of the times you're not moving from right to left, although some games experiment with that now. Uh, back in the days, you were moving left to right. It was the natural flow. It was the natural progression of the way you played a 2D platformer game. So the game warps you in, you can immediately only go to the right, and uh, after traversing to the right for just a few moments, you encounter your first enemy, who is a wheel that rolls along the ground towards you. So the only thing you know at this point in the game is to move left or right. So you try to move back left to escape from the wheel, you can't do anything, you get hit, you lose life. But not too much life, just a little bit. So the game is showing you that you don't have to feel bad about getting hit. You have a lot of life. You can make a lot of mistakes. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. You can make mistakes. It's fine. They give you a lot of chances to progress with the level. Now you move forward and you press buttons and you find out one of the buttons is a jump. So you can jump over, find that you can jump over that enemy. The game teaches you that, hey, you can jump over this enemy. Uh, the next enemy you reach is that robot guy that opens his hatch and kind of shoots uh, lightning balls and missiles at you. 
And again, you experiment pressing buttons, you find that you can shoot. It's reinforcing that not all enemies can be jumped over and bypassed. You have to defeat certain enemies and that shooting is the main mechanic by which you defeat enemies. So you might think that this stuff is like pretty basic. You're like, yeah, I get it. This is something that you just inherently know by playing games like you should. And the, the thing is about it, too, is like you don't think about it. You don't think about the way the game is teaching you to play it like you're just playing it because humans can recognize patterns and when they're being shown things it doesn't have to be shoved down their throats by a tutorial be like oh the guy that shoots you if you get if you get hit you'll damage or or if if you fall into a pit you'll die it's like yeah like no no fuck we know those things it's it's inherent in our brains we know that uh, things are dangerous and we don't want to be hit by them the biggest way that you can see this in in this fight and uh, uh or this intro stage is the first mini is a couple of mini bosses they put in there and they put in these B helicopters that show up without health bars and you get an opportunity to shoot them, blast them down. They put out little enemies that are like big spheres on like long walking legs. And uh, as they walk forward, you see that your shots fire through their legs. So you jump up and you have to shoot them in the head and it's registers in your brain. OK, so some enemies have sweet spots that I have to hit them in order to defeat them. Uh, you defeat the bee, he lands on the highway, and he collapses the bridge, and you fall down to the level below. You're stuck down there. You're like, shit, I don't know how to get out of here. I'm stuck down here with this bee. What do I do? Uh, you can't go left because there's a, con a pillar there. Uh, if you go right, there's a pillar there as well. But there's an interesting spot with the placement of the bee copter and the wall, whereas if you jump up on the bee, walk right, and then continue to walk right and just hit the wall uh mega man grabs on the wall and descends down very slowly and you see a little smoke trail that, that follows after him and then you're like oh okay so maybe i can like do something on this wall because you know he grabbed onto the wall and descended so you do that again you jump back up there you walk towards the wall and you start to slide down you hit buttons you hit the jump button and you're able to ascend so that very subtle design decision in the bee copter fight when you're down there to draw you towards that spot in the wall where there's a little bit of a gap there is just showing you with no tutorial with nobody coming in saying hey you can wall jump that you can wall jump part of learning the game is experimenting if you're just told everything up front you know even in games that have the best tutorials that show you all the mechanics of this stuff like you still have to experiment to learn how to play the game and this game shows you hey this is one of the core mechanics and it shows you in a very, very clever way after that B copter fight. And then the next uh, column over, uh, you can even see when you're down in, in that crevice in the after the B copter fight uh, on the other side of a pillar, there's little health power ups that you can go and grab and get out of uh, that predicament with the B copter. Uh, you can go back down on the other side of the column and get the health power ups and wall jump back out. So uh, the game kind of gives you an incentive to try out your new your new ability that you taught yourself. You didn't have to have anybody tell you or explain it to you. The B copter fight is also a super cool misdirection for the fight that happens at the end of this intro stage. So the B copter doesn't have a health bar. In the entirety of the Mega Man series, every single boss that you fight has some kind of health bar. So you don't know if this is just a new thing for the Mega Man X series like if you if you have played Mega Man before and you're you're playing X for the first time or if you're a newcomer you don't know if like the bosses have any indicators of of health of any kind so you just have to keep shooting the boss until you defeat it and this ties really really awesomely into the fight at the end of the stage which is where you fight Vile as I said earlier in the episode a fight that you are designed to lose it is a fight that you cannot win you lose on like you don't lose on purpose, but uh, no matter how hard you try, you will be defeated by Vile. If you're not careful, you can actually also be murdered here. But that fight ends when your health gets low enough and Vile, he's in a giant mech suit that and he grabs you and he pretty much like talks shit to your face and says, hey, you're too weak. You can't defeat me. And this is where Zero comes in. He comes flying. He comes dashing in. He blasts a charge shot at him and blows the arm off of Vile's mech. And Vile's like, oh, shit, and then just runs away. Because if you were playing this for the first time, because the B-copter didn't have health, you don't know if Vile is supposed to have health or not. 
So you don't know if your attacks are damaging him or if you're even doing what you're supposed to be doing in this fight because there's no indicator that uh, he's visibly taking damage or he's visibly taking health. Like you shoot him as many times as the bee copter, but he's not dead. And only afterwards do you learn like this is supposed to be a fight you lose for for story purposes because Zero comes in as cool as fucking Zero is and blasts the dude's arm off. And then he and then X is like kneeling on the ground. He, like, he feels sorry for himself. He's like, I guess I'm not as powerful as I thought I was. You know, I need to you know get more powerful. And Zero's like, yo, don't worry about it, X. Like you're not as powerful as you are yet, but you can become more powerful and you may become more powerful than me. And if this is your first time playing the game, that's super fucking cool. Like Zero comes in like such a badass, flies in, damages this guy that you can't even visibly damage and then just tells you, yeah, you're going to be as powerful as me. Like that is awesome. And this combined with the way the intro stage teaches you how to play the game themes the game so well. It establishes the core theme of it establishes your motivation in this game. You feel so helpless in that vile fight, and it really drives the helplessness home about how weak and how powerless you are to defeat him. And when Zero tells you, you can get stronger, you will get stronger, that motivation to become stronger and to go and whoop Vile's ass is a very powerful motivator and creates an incredible through line for the rest of this game. This the journey of becoming stronger to defeat Vile and to stop Sigma. And all of the themes of Mega Man X are enforced by this idea of getting stronger. The armor pieces, the abilities you get from the Mavericks, the armor pieces, which, by the way, kind of make you look more like Zero. And then as you get the armor pieces, you can do the things that Zero does, like Dash, establish this incredible theme of getting stronger. The entire intro stage does such a fantastic job of not only teaching players how to play the game in a controlled environment, but also establishing this through line for the rest of the game of becoming stronger. And at every turn, every stage you do, every story beat reinforces this idea of X getting stronger to defeat Vile and defeat Sigma. You might think like, duh, that's what it, it does. You might take that for granted that video games are supposed to do that. But when you really start to think about the art and the design and the thinking process that goes into making a video game, People aren't just slapping shit down and hoping that it works. It's very, very carefully crafted to, at least some things are, very carefully crafted to inherently teach you about the way a game should be designed and to provide a reason for you to continue to play that game, to provide a through line until the end, whether it's a touching story, whether you're uh, Joel and Ellie on an adventure across the United States, whether you're Ratchet trying to find his family, it establishes a very, very strong through line and a really compelling through line that make Mega Man X feel incredible to play. We take things for granted now because we've been exposed to video games for so long where it's just like, yeah, duh, like things like I should be able to pick up and just inherently understand how to design to play a video game. That is not as easy to pull off as you might think. It's not just people putting down blocks in a in a game engine and you know the the distances the the environments are very well thought out and everything has a purpose the original level one of super mario bros back on the nes was they they used to draw those levels on graph paper very meticulously planning those out miyamoto very meticulously planned out world one one to teach you everything that you needed to know to play super mario bros in that first world in that first level it is the reason why that Goomba in the first level is probably the deadliest video game enemy of all time. That Goomba taught so many people that touching an enemy will kill you in a video game, that you have to jump over them. It was a very strategically, intelligently placed learning device, although like nowadays you might take that for granted because, yeah, duh, you should, you should teach your players how to play games through gameplay. But when you start to break down and just think about how brilliant things are like that, how brilliant World 1-1 is in Super Mario Bros., how brilliant the intro stage for Mega Man X is, there wasn't even that much story in the, the first level of, of Super Mario Bros. In, in Super Mario at all, right? You're just going to save the princess. That's your only motivation. The intro stage for Mega Man X is in the spirit, in the vein of the first level of Super Mario Bros., 
and it does a fantastic job of teaching you how to play, teaching you the core game mechanics, what you need to do to advance through this game as X, and throws a little bit of a misdirection at you with the B-Copter fight that makes the Vile fight feel more helpless, and then establishes a theme of growth and strength by bringing Zero in to absolutely wreck at the end of the stage. It's brilliant. It's so utterly brilliant the way it's designed. And I will fight this to this day. Again, you might think it's something we take for granted. Like I'll often argue that Mario these days is taken for granted just because of how stellar all of his games, most of his games have been, the mainline ones at least. I think Mario Odyssey is a masterpiece of playground platforming and gaming that just had so much thought and care put into it. I think the intro stage of Mega Man X is a masterpiece, a masterclass on how to design something to teach your players how to play a game and to establish an incredible motivation for them to want to continue playing it. It's absolutely wonderful. It's taught me and Mega Man X by itself, uh, along with the sequelitis video, got me thinking about video games in a way that I hadn't before and got me thinking about them in terms of why certain things are laid out the way they are as I progress through levels, as I progress through worlds, what were the developer's intentions by placing this thing here, placing that thing there? Is it creating atmosphere? Are they trying to teach me something by their intentional placement of objects in the environment? Are they trying to tell a story? Are they trying to soft world build by just the way certain things are arranged in a level? Like what are they trying to do? And I've been taking that thought approach more as I've been playing games, especially into my uh, Kingdom Hearts playthrough. So despite the fact that I played Mega Man X not that long ago, it really did change my perspective on the way I think about video games. And I think that's huge. I think I think that when you play games, you should be able to think about it. You know, it should be a thing where you can turn your brain off and relax and stuff. But Video games as a medium offer so much. There's so much intention and design and, and artistic value behind the things that are put on a screen for us that Mega Man X taught me to think about a little bit deeper. That is why I put this game after Super Mario World. That is why I've, I revere and hold this game to such a high standard today. And it's just fucking fun to play. It's so fun to play. It feels so good executing dashes, wrecking bosses with their weaknesses, getting more abilities to power up. It is one of the best games of the 90s on the Super Nintendo. I think it stands the test of time as one of the best games ever made. I don't say that lightly because you know it's easy to say a game is the best game ever made. But I think this is an incredible example. If you want to get into game design, if you want to start thinking about making your own games, uh, games like Mega Man X, especially the intro stage, it should be a starting point for you so you can start thinking about how and why things are intentionally designed the way they are. Thank you so much for tuning in to my Mega Man X rant and just some of my thoughts on it. But before we go, this is a solo episode. And I think it's time for something I haven't done in a fairly long time. I'm talking about, of course, everyone's favorite segment. It's Pokedex, please. Today's entry on Pokedex, please, comes from the very first generation of Pokemon. Red, blue, green, yellow. We're going back to 
the beginning of the series of the franchise, the games that started it all. But we will be looking at a couple of Pokedex entries from the different generations throughout uh, the 25 year history of the franchise. Uh, of course, today's entry in Pokedex, please, is my boy Gyarados. Number 131 in the Pokedex, standing at a staggering 21 feet 4 inches, weighing 518 pounds, which seems light. He is a water flying type though, so I guess he'd have to be that light to be able to fly. 21 feet tall, man, that's, that is absolutely huge. It's, he, he towers, he towers over any single family home structure built easily. Today's Pokedex entry, multiple Pokedex entries will come from generation, uh, I would say, let's start with gen one, red and blue. Rarely seen in the wild, huge and vicious, it is capable of destroying entire cities in a rage. Similarly in Gen 1, yellow. Brutally vicious and enormously destructive, known for totally destroying cities in ancient times. Here's an interesting entry from Ruby, Generation 3. When Magikarp evolves into Gyarados, its brain cells undergo a structural transformation. It is said that this transformation is to blame for this Pokemon's wildly violent nature. Also a Pokedex entry from Sapphire, Gen 3. Once Gyarados goes on a rampage, its ferociously violent blood doesn't calm until it has burned everything down. There are records of this Pokemon's rampages lasting a whole month. Generation 4, Diamond. Once it appears, its rage never settles until it has raised the fields and mountains around it. Ladies and gentlemen, the entire purpose of Pokedex, please, is to communicate to you, the listening audience, how absolutely terrifying it would be to live in the world of Pokemon based on the Pokedex entries. Now, I know the Pokedex entries were put together by 10-year-olds sent into the wild by an insane professor. So of course, 10-year-olds exaggerate when they see a giant Gyarados, they go, oh my God, it can destroy the cities. But if the Pokedex entries are correct, which we're assuming they are for the purpose of this segment, when Gyarados appears, it destroys everything in its path. It wipes out cities. Can you imagine? Just transpose the world of Pokemon onto the real world today. A Gyarados appears off the coast of New York City and does not stop until it destroys the entirety of New York City. Absolutely insane. There's something happens in the brain of a Magikarp when it evolves into a Gyarados that makes it go just absolutely batshit insane. It becomes anger incarnate. It is literally too angry to do anything else except be angry and destroy everything in its path. There would be no human advancement if Gyarados was a real Pokemon. It would set humanity back thousands of years. For every time one would show up, it would just destroy everything in its path until it's not angry anymore. Absolutely devastating. Absolutely devastating. And children capture these Pokemon and put them in fights against other children slash adults slash other Pokemon. It, to me, it makes no sense. This is terrifying. Anybody that says they want to live in the world of Pokemon is nuts when you have a rampaging psycho creature like Gyarados out in the world that can just roll up to your hometown at any moment and wipe everything out in its path, killing everybody in sight. The bloodlust of Gyarados knows no bounds. Very, consider very carefully where you decide to go and live if you live in the world of Pokemon. Make sure there are in fact no Gyarados nearby. Or any Magikarp, anything. Don't even live near a body of water where it could possibly happen. Although I don't know if that would save you because Gyarados is part flying, so it could just fly to wherever the fuck it feels like and wipe out your town. When dealing with Gyarados, be careful. This has been Pokedex Please. Guys, I'd like to thank you so much for tuning in today to listen to me ramble about another game that has meant so much to me. Like I said, I had skits planned for this episode. I This episode was difficult to record even throughout this. You guys won't hear it, but the unedited version is full of pauses and second-guessing my words and just dealing with a lot of anxiety over podcasting stuff for some reason. I'm not really sure. Uh, there will be more skits to come when we approach our next game. And I said I would reveal it at 
the end of this episode, which I will. After Mega Man X, we will be going to the place that we just came from. We will be going to the world of Pokemon when we talk about Pokemon Red, Pokemon Blue, and Pokemon Yellow for the Game Boy. When I talk about my experiences and what impact those games had on me as a child. And I'll be very excited to talk about those. Uh, If you haven't seen, there will be an episode probably before that one comes out uh, over on the main quest where I got to sit down with a couple of people, Keith included, to talk about Pokemon Red and Blue and whether those games hold up today. So look for that episode to be coming relatively soon. I thank you guys so much for tuning in, listening to me ramble. If you want to find me on social media, all of the social media stuff is linked in the, the show description, or you can go to linktr.ee slash unlockables podcast. All the links of where you can find us are in there. Uh, we are also now on TikTok where I am posting snippets of the show, trying to figure out the algorithm, using that as an excuse to practice short length video content for my job, which they want me to explore. So hooray kids, I have to learn how to do all the silly TikTok dances. That is fantastic. But You can find me there as well. Give us a follow to keep up with everything going on with all things Unlockables. And I thank you so much for tuning in, as always. (laughs) 